Ladies. We are glad you're here this morning. Um, once again, I want to welcome you. Thank you for joining us, whether you're joining us physically or over the internet. We're glad you're here. Um, we have we are having children's church this morning. Parents are, are looking at me with that quizzical look, and uh, we have uh, expanded ages this morning, um, and so. That, that means that the normal ages don't apply because this morning's sermon is kind of PG-13. So if, uh, if you don't normally uh, send your kid to children's church, you might want to. Um, not, not, uh, it's up to you, but you've been warned. Um, so uh, we're going to sing, if you will, with me. We're going to help them get out of here. We're going to sing Jesus Loves the Little Children. Everybody stand up. And we're going to help these little ones get to children's church. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in His sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Jesus died for all the children, all the children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in His sight. Jesus died for all the children of the world. Amen. Have a seat. In October, State Farm Insurance Company released their 18th annual Animal Vehicle Collision Study. Didn't know they did a thing like this, did you? I didn't either. They do a study every year of animal vehicle collisions. And there was a lot of interesting information in that. First, the, the first three months of, of the quarantine this year, March through May, saw an over 20% decrease in the rate of animal-related incidents because nobody, well, fewer people were on the road. Um, still, however, we had 1.9 million animal-related accidents in the United States. 67% of those involved deer. Now, those of you who live in Elkins, you know. They, they come after you. Um, it, but 67% of those, of those deer-related accidents, a whopping 85% of those happened in the late fall. Interesting, right? Now, all my deer hunters are shaking your head because you understand, right? You know why that was happening. Why are all our deer accidents happening in the late fall? Well, we call it the rut. In, in, in human terms, we call it lust. And, and lust drives them crazy. And so they do stupid things. That's not just deer. I'm talking about humans, too. Lust can drive us to do some really ignorant things. We're concentrating like these bucks so much on what we're chasing that we miss where we're going. Deer aren't the only ones that place themselves in danger or in dangerous situations because of lust. Let me give you some examples. Humans spend four billion hours a year. That's a B. Four billion hours a year watching pornography. Now, Sorry, that understates the problem. Um, four and a half billion hours to, to watching pornography on one particular site that reports this. Four billion 
hours. Humanity spent twice as much time viewing pornography as it spent existing on planet Earth. That adds up to over 500,000 years worth consumed in the span of 12 months. Now, that seems weird. And we're listening to this and you're like, wait a minute, Jeff, we don't talk about this stuff in church. What are you doing? Well, I think we need to because it's more than an interesting bit of trivia. Um, these figures are serious. They're, they're, well, they're staggering. It's America's favorite pastime. According to surveys, 80% of American men between the ages of 18 and 30 admit to watching pornography regularly. Nearly 70% of men aged 31 to 49 admit to it. And 50% of men aged 55 and above admit to watching regular pornography. That's amazing. That's, that's staggering. 30% of younger men say they watch it every day. Now, it's not quite as common among women, but it's still far more common than it was at any time in our history. This is just what people admit to, mind you. We don't, all, we don't admit to, to most of it, so it's probably even worse than that. Let me give you another picture. The, the, the pornography industry in the United States today is worth $97 million. Let me put that in perspective for you. It grosses more than Hollywood. It, it brings in more money in a year than the NFL, the NBA, and Major League Baseball combined. It's a big deal. And, and no one is telling these people, and those of us who, are, who, who, who might be wrestling with this, that it's destroying lives. And nobody's talking about it. We don't talk about this in church. We're not supposed to talk about lust. We're not supposed to talk about sex. We're not supposed to talk about pornography. We're supposed to talk about sweet, happy, cheerful things. There are scientific studies that demonstrate that the part of the brain that fires uh, during that release is the same part of the brain that fires in a heroin addict's brain when they are hitting that high. And we wonder why it's so addictive. It's, it's lust is also destructive. One of the most devastating repercussions of, of this, uh, these studies are, are that men, as they age and as they move on, are finding that real-life women can now no longer satisfy them. They don't live up to whatever they've been watching in the two-dimensional world, and, and so they're creating even more problems for themselves down the road. Some women today are reporting it increasingly difficult. Those under 30 are, are, are reporting that, they are having, that it's increasingly difficult to satisfy their partners because these people have been conditioned by fantasy. They've been conditioned to be in love with a two-dimensional image instead of a real person. And so that same lust that drives a deer into traffic is destroying relationships and, and crippling lives. Now, this is nothing new. The Bible is not afraid to address this. We may not address it in church, but the Bible is not scared of this. The Bible's been addressing this for years because this is nothing new. You go look at archaeology and scholars will document walls of ruins they have found in ancient Rome covered in erotic illustrations. Pornography. Going all the way back before the first century. That, that it's something that has been pervasive in our society for years because lust is not limited to any one setting. 
Jesus, in his longest recorded sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount, addresses this problem very directly. If you have your Bibles, Matthew 5, we're going to read verse 27 through 30, where Jesus addresses the problem of lust very directly. Verse 27, Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. When we read that passage... What many people take away, and I've, I've heard sermons preached on this, is that if you have any sexual desire whatsoever, you're going to hell. Now, that's not what he's saying. Because God created sex. God created sexual desire. He created you to, to, to have those sexual desires. And so I, I want to attempt this morning for you to see that there is a biblical Christian understanding of sex. That there is an appropriate place for that in our lives. And when we take it out of that place, that's when we have problems. But the Christian view of sex is one of the most attractive things about being a Christian. Verse 27, Jesus starts with, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. Now, that's Ten Commandments. That's Old Testament. He's going back to the old law and he's saying, you, you know the Old Testament sexual ethic. Now, what is that? What is the Old Testament sexual ethic? Well, it's simple. One word. Covenant. The Old Testament sexual ethic is very simple. Covenant. Or more specifically, sex inside the covenant. That, that, that's a really archaic word. And, and somebody might say, Jeff, can't you come up with a better word than that? And the problem is, no, not really. Because there's not another word in our, in our vernacular that, that properly sums up what the Bible is talking about when it talks about covenant. That that a covenant relationship is, is an intimate relationship in the best way. It's more than just physical. And it's more than just an intimate relationship. It's, it's something that is special, something that is divine and holy. But today, our society is much more about consumer relationships than covenant relationships. Here's what I mean by that. A consumer relationship. In a consumer relationship, you have a consumer and a vendor. You have someone supplying something and you have the demand on the other side. We understand that. In our relationships, we have created relationships that are consumer-oriented. That, that we say to our vendor, we have a relationship and, and you better keep adjusting to me and to my needs because if you don't meet my needs, I'm going to go find another vendor to supply them. That's a consumer relationship. That's where you have to take care of me because my needs are more important than our relationship. Now, a covenant relationship is exactly the opposite. In a covenant relationship, the, 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 well, the consumer relationship is you adjust to me or I'm going to go find something else out there. The covenant relationship says I'm going to adjust to you because our relationship is more important than my needs. You see the difference? But in our society, we've raised these consumer relationships to the norm. And nobody talks about covenant relationships anymore. There, there are some beautiful things about a covenant relationship that you can't find anywhere else. Let me give you a few, uh, a few of them. First of all, you have a zone of security. Okay? 
in a covenant relationship, you have a, a zone of safety, a place, where, a place where you can be yourself. See, in a consumer relationship, I'm always marketing. I'm always advertising. I always want to keep everything on. I've got to be at my best, and I've got to be selling everything. I've got to be perfect, because if I'm not perfect, she might go looking somewhere else. So I've got to be on my game all the time. In a, in a covenant relationship, I can finally relax that and let my guard down and be myself. I can actually expose my insecurities. I can actually share my fears my dreams, my hopes. I can be vulnerable in a way that I can't be in a lot of relationships outside of that. And so I have a zone of, of security and safety. Second, in a covenant relationship, ironically, when, when you are more committed to a person in spite of your feelings, those feelings grow. Those deeper feelings grow. If you're committed to a person in spite of your feelings, deeper feelings grow. For example, in, in the other covenant relationship besides husband and wife is the relationship between parents and children. And, and all of you know, whether you're parents or not, that, that in parenting you don't get a whole lot back, right? You're, you're, not, you're not doing this because of what you get. It's not a consumer relationship. It is a covenant relationship because you give and you give and you give. And even when we get into adulthood, we still confess and realize we can never pay back our parents. When you are in a covenant relationship and, and you're committed to someone despite your feelings, those feelings grow into a deeper, richer kind of feeling. You're invested in this person. You're invested in them, not because of what they can give you, but because of who they are. And the third thing that comes, well, the first thing is a zone of security. You can be yourself. You can be safe. The second thing is when, when you're committed to someone, despite your feelings, deeper feelings go grow. And, and number three is there's an, an element of freedom. Because when I'm, in, when I'm connected to my feelings, when my relationship is based on my feelings, then I'm a slave to my feelings. I am, I am uh, all about whether my feelings are, are up or down. And if you've been married or been in a relationship for any length of time, you know that your feelings are all over the place, right? It's not always, you know, roses and chocolates and all that. And sometimes it's, it's a lot worse. But when my relationship is not based on my feelings, then it gives us both an element of freedom. Because I'm not a puppet on a string to my feelings. I, I, and, and so you want to get off the string? You want to get free? Here's what you do. You make a commitment. You say, I'm here and I'm going to adjust to your needs because your needs are more important than my needs. Our relationship is more important than my needs. Now, what's this got to do with sex? Well, everything. Everything. Because what the Bible says is that sex is not a consumer good. It's a covenant good. A consumer good is the way you keep someone in a consumer relationship. It's the way that you keep the vendor. You keep the customer coming back. In a covenant relationship, it's not the same. You're not, you're not saying, well, I need sex every so often, and, and sex is a way for me to feel good about myself or, or to make me feel adored or, or to find somebody who's meeting my individual needs. Sex is not a consumer good in a covenant relationship. It is a covenant good. Here's what that means. 
In a covenant, after I've made a promise, sex becomes like a sacrament. Now, we don't use that word a lot, but that's a churchy word. And, and sacrament literally is, is an external visible sign of a deeper internal truth, of a deeper invisible reality. So what I mean by that is that when I am in a covenant relationship, it, it becomes a symbol. When I use sex inside of a covenant, it becomes, it becomes a vehicle for engaging the whole person. And so it becomes demonstrative of this act of giving myself, of being open myself, of being totally vulnerable and giving this individual everything about me. When, when I, in marriage, make myself physically naked and vulnerable, it's a sign of what I've done with my whole life. That, that I'm giving this person total commitment. And so we're saying, when, when we do something outside of that covenant, we're saying, let's, let's be physically vulnerable to each other, but I'm going to keep all this other stuff over here. C.S. Lewis commented on this, and he, he puts it perfectly. He says, The monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all other kinds of union which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union. To, to have a physical union without the whole life union is not just a lack of integrity, but, but it, it, it's only getting part of the package. That's why I tell you that the, the Christian view of sex is so much greater than anything the world provides. Because when we're talking about sex inside of a covenant, we're talking about this being a sacramental experience where we reaffirm the commitments that we've already made to one another. Outside of that, it's just a small part of the bigger picture. Now, there are more and more studies that are showing that people who live together before they get married are more likely to divorce than people who don't. Now that's staggering to a lot of people because our culture tells you the opposite of that. Our culture tells you that, that uh, you, should, you should live together and figure out whether you're compatible. And, and, and if you do that, then you'll know whether you'll be successful in marriage or not. The problem is all the psychologists and all the studies point out that that's really not possible. Because... Well, let me read you. In one recent article, a clinical psychologist wrote, one thing men and women do agree on is that their standards for a live-in partner are lower than they are for a spouse. And so they interviewed people who are in that relationship and who have gone on to be married. One woman said, I felt I was on this multi-year never-ending audition. That I was always auditioning to be his wife. Because when you're just living together without a covenant, you're in a consumer relationship. And so you're always marketing. You're always advertising. You're always trying to make sure that, that, that everything is connected here because there's no real freedom. There's no real security. There's no real safety. It's not the same thing. The integrity of sex is, is, is there and it is that there must be an integrity between my body, my physical actions, and my life. That, that my, my physical actions must also connect with my spiritual actions. That's the Old Testament foundation, okay? That's what Jesus is building on. And he says, I know you've always heard no sex outside of marriage, but I want to talk to you about your thoughts. 
because it's deeper than that. Now, a lot of folks write this off. We start on this, and we start in the Sermon on the Mount, and they go, oh, here we go. Here comes the prudish uh, Christian stuff. A lot of folks write this off because they think Jesus is saying that anyone physically or sexually attracted to anyone is terrible and is condemned to hell. That's not what he's saying. First of all, we know that because there's perfectly good words that he could have used for sexual desires that he doesn't use here. The the Bible uses a particular word, and, and it's interesting because this is an unusual word to be used in connection with sex. He doesn't use the word for sexual attraction or even lust. He uses the word that primarily everywhere else means idolatry and greed. Interesting, right? He's using a word that usually means idolatry and greed. Now, if you want to understand the attitude that that Jesus is talking about towards sex, think about greed. Okay? That's what he's giving us. Greed. Greed. Now, is there something wrong with making money and having money? No, there's not. I can show you all through Scripture. Abraham, Job, lots of people that God blessed who had plenty of money. And so that's a whole other sermon. We'll do that some other time. But, but the idea is that it's not about having money or making money. It's about idolatry. It's about worshiping money. It's about this insatiable need for money. And that's what Jesus is talking about connected here to sex. That, that it's something that we worship. It's something that we have to have. It's something that, that, that we work hard to get, that we obsess about. And, and so now you're seeing a picture, not just of what Jesus is talking about, but of our entire society. That, that sex is this thing that we've got to go after. That, and Jesus says that greed, it's possible to have that same kind of greedy, idolatrous attitude that, that we have towards money, towards sex. And so when we make sex an idol... Like greed, something that's used selfishly, something that is addicting, something that's used to fulfill my greatest fantasies, well, that's wrong. And that's some of the forms of that that we're talking about, like pornography. I mean, pornography is the ultimate selfish action because it's so completely focused on yourself and your needs and what you have. It's not focused on another person in any particular way. The second form is what we've been talking about, sex outside of marriage to some degree, because we've all already talked about that this consumer relationship is purely based on my needs. Now, you see that this, this, this is what Jesus is talking about. The third version is, is just the belief, and we're still talking about sexual idolatry, but just the belief that I can't be a whole person and I can't have a whole complete relationship without sex. That, that every so often, unless I'm having sex, I can't be a whole person. I can't be happy. Um, that to be a mature adult, that's something I have to do. And, and the, the, only, the, the only object, the only, the only thing that, that, that can give us that true fulfillment and that true happiness, we've talked about this already in regard to love, is God. We're not going to find our fulfillment in sex even more than we're going to find it in love. And so what Jesus is saying is, look, this is poison. This idolatry and greed towards sex is is poison. It's not just sinful. It's going to destroy you. He says, look at how this damages you. Look at how this tears apart not just your individual life, but your relationships. And he says, you've got to be drastic about it. 
When he uses the eye and the hand, that's what he's talking about. He's saying, do whatever it takes. Go to whatever length it is you need to go to, but get this out of your life. Make it stop. And if you have to cut things off, cut them off. Yes, that's what he means, what you think he means right now. The idolatry of sexuality and love will destroy you. It will destroy your relationships. It will destroy you personally and spiritually. When I'm using it selfishly, when I'm making it a consumer good, when I'm getting addicted to it, when I'm looking to it for the fulfillment of my fantasies or my life dreams, when I'm looking to it to give me the the affirmation that I can only find in God, that struggle with lust is going to eat you alive. So where's the hope? I mean, it sounds bleak. Are we truly in such a hopeless state that, that there's no way out? Yes. That's the point. That's the point. That's why God sent us a Savior. Because the Bible teaches that love is the only hope. The only hope of, that, that, that can combat this struggle with lust is, is this hope of love. When I was a, a youth minister, I was counseling a teen who was struggling with lust. And he was, he was wrestling with pornography and with lust and everything associated with it. And he says, I've done everything. I, I, I quit it and I come back to it. I put the blockers on my phone and on my computer and I still come back to it. I, I, I push things away and I set up all these walls to keep me from it, but I still come back to it. And I said, okay, so if every time you are tempted, if every time you're ready to go turn on that computer, I told you that for every time you said no, I'd give you $100. Do you think you could do it? Well, yeah. Because the only way I'm going to be successful is not to just cut it off. I've got to replace it with a greater desire. Does that make sense? I've got to replace it with a greater desire that can overcome it. I can't just cut it out. If I just cut it out, Jesus says all that's doing is leaving a hole and and more demons are going to come back. So I can't just cut it out. I've got to fill that hole with a greater desire. And what is that greater desire? Well, Jesus hints at it when he talks about hell. Some people say this is over the top now. We're, we're, we're talking about hell. Well, we're not supposed to talk about hell either, Jeff. You're supposed to be loving and sweet and kind and call people to, to, to love Jesus. Well, Jesus is not afraid to talk about hell. There are several words he could have used here. The word he used is Gehenna. Now, that's one of the images for hell in the Bible. And, and there really was a Gehenna place. It was, it was a place outside of Jerusalem where the garbage was burned. And so there was always a fire going there. And, and, and so Gehenna, you get the idea of, of hell as being this desolate place where, where there is no fulfillment, where, where there, is, there is this unquenchable, undying thirst, this unfulfilled longing that, that God created you to know Him and to seek Him. And if you lose Him, if that's removed from your life, then that is hell because you can never fulfill this thing inside of you that is longing to be fulfilled. We lose the ability when we lose God to have our deepest needs fulfilled. And so one of the pictures of hell in Scripture is this unfulfilled longing, this this deep, deep, unquenchable thirst, if you will. And Jesus is saying sex outside of marriage points to that. Because sex outside of of a covenant holds this promise of of consolation, this promise of closure, this promise of, of affirmation, and it can't deliver it. 
He can't deliver it because it wasn't meant to deliver. It's going to fail every single time. And so you're, you're like the, the, the ancient metaphor about the guy in the boat in the middle of the ocean. Water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. Jesus says, if sex outside of the covenant points toward hell, sex inside of the covenant points towards what? Well, Paul's going to say in Romans 7, Ephesians 5, the most rapturous love between husband and wife is a dim foretaste of our fulfillment that we will only find when we find our true spouse, when we find our true fulfillment, our Savior. When Jesus is talking to the woman at the well in John 4, he tells her, I'll give you some water and you'll never be thirsty again. She says, sir, give, give me this water. And, and he says, go get your husband. Now, you read that and you go, is he doing a parlor trick here? Is he just trying to catch her and say, look what I know about you? I don't think so. Because he's, he's, he's not making a crazy jump here. He's saying, you've been trying to fulfill your longings through men. And it's failed over and over and over. The water, the fulfillment that I'm offering you is greater than anything. It's what you've been looking for this whole time. Use what you've been seeking and you've been trying to fulfill through sex, but you haven't been able to. That water, Jesus says, is, is him. Jesus says, I am the living water. And if I give you this water, you won't go thirsty anymore. That unfulfilled longing that you're trying to chase through sex can, can be fulfilled only in Jesus. Which brings us to our response. Because regardless of where you're at, whether you're here or whether you're at home, there are people who are spoke to because of this this morning. We're not going to offer a traditional invitation this morning because this is a very touchy and personal, embarrassing subject. I don't want to feel anybody, anybody to feel put on the spot. However, if the Holy Spirit is convicting your heart this morning, we want to give you an opportunity to respond to that. And so we're going to have an elder in classroom D, and we're going to have an elder in classroom B. And they are there to confidentially pray with you. We're putting them outside of this room where you don't have to be on the spot, where nobody's going to see you. They're far enough away from the main entrance. Nobody's going to care whether you come in or out of there. Nobody's looking at you. But if God is convicting your heart this morning, the only way you're going to get this right is not to just cut it out of your life. You've got to replace it with the only water that can quench that thirst. And the only way you're going to do that is to come to Jesus Christ. And that's the invitation that we're offering this morning. And so... They're going to be there not just during this invitation song, but throughout the end of service and a little bit after. And so if you feel the need, if God is touching your heart right now, that's not Jeff. Jeff doesn't have that power. Jeff can't do that to you. So don't think that. Jeff, Jeff's manipulating my emotions. That's not me. I can't do that. I'm not that skilled. That's the Holy Spirit telling you it's time for you to seek fulfillment somewhere else. It's time for you to seek fulfillment only in the one thing that's going to offer that. And that's not sex. That's not pornography. It's not even other people. It's only in the arms of Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to pray. And then Larry's going to sing us a song. 
and, and then we're going to go on our way. But I encourage you, if you're watching online, you can't go to one of those, hey, our email, I'll tell you right now, jeff at huntsvillecoc.com, public, email me. We will have somebody pray with you. I want you to understand that, that we think this is important enough that, that we want to help you be able to get past this. And so we're not offering that because we, we want to be gossiping about your life. I don't care about that. We're offering that because Jesus says this will tear you apart and you've got to stop it. Regardless of what it takes, cut it out of your life however you have to do it. We will be happy to help you with that, whether that's through prayer, whether that's through baptism. You publicly confess and say, you know what, I've been trying to, to do this myself and I can't do it. And so I'm going to give it up fully to Jesus. And I'm going to be buried with him in baptism. I'm going to be raised as a new creation. And when I do that, the Holy Spirit is going to come and live inside of me and give life to my body in a way that I could never have before. That's what we're offering this morning. If we can help you in any way, come privately, come to us digitally online, whatever we can do. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we confess to you, Lord, that we are frail, feeble, sinful creatures. Lord, we can't do this. We can't do it on our own. We try and we posture and we act like we 